We're in a series this morning. Well, we're in a series this last few weeks going to the next few in the book of James. And uh, this is actually the second half of a sermon that I began two weeks ago. And two weeks ago, I spent the entire sermon on what I thought was the key phrase, or maybe another way to say it is the phrase of first importance. You have to have this um, foundation, you have to have this building block in place before we talk about found, uh, about favoritism. We've got to establish something first, and James establishes it for us. And it can be something that you quickly run through, or you 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 read by, and you just don't pick it up. But it's a a critical phrase. And we spent the whole week, or the whole sermon, two weeks ago, thinking about this. If you look in verse one of chapter two, my brothers, show no partiality. Again. Uh, we're, we're, the whole series is Christianity at street level. How do you how do you live your life out on the streets? And one of the things that James spends a good bit of time here, 13 verses, is about favoritism or partiality. And he says, brothers, show no partiality as or because you are holding on. And this is this is the foundation. The reason that you you're not showing partiality, the reason you're not showing favoritism is because you have this foundation underneath you. This is what you're standing on. And he says, you're you're holding on by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the ESV it says the Lord of glory. But in the Greek, it just says you're holding on to the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. He is the glory of God. He is the, the physical representation of God Almighty. And so when Jesus has come to this earth, he, he is the, the full embodiment of God, the glory. And when you hold on to him by faith, then you have that same glory. And the way I try to describe the glory was I used it in, it's used in many different ways in the Bible, but, but one way the word glory is used is weight or, or realness. So when you're describing something or someone of glory, you're, you're saying it's weighty, it's the real thing. You're not holding on to anything shallow or anything superficial. You're, you're holding on to something real. Or glory can be used as a way of describing wealth or status. When you're holding on to Jesus Christ, the glory, you're holding on to the, to the full weight of God and you're holding on to the full status of God. You, you've got that in your hands when, by faith, you're holding on to Jesus Christ. And finally, glory means the presence of God. You remember Moses said to God, show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to see you face to face. And so when you're holding on to Jesus Christ, when this is the foundation or the platform you're on, you're, you're, you're saying, I've got the full weight. I've got the full wealth or status. I, I've got the presence of God. And so because I have those things, everything else is going to pale in comparison. Because I, I'm holding on to this glory, if someone walks into our assembly, as James uses in his illustration, if somebody walks in with riches... Or rags, <laughs> it doesn't matter. 
If somebody walks in sporting a big gold ring or a big tattoo, I don't, I don't care. I'm not holding on to those external things. When, when you walk into the assembly, I've got a hold of what's real, what's weighty. I, I'm, I'm in the presence of God. And so when you walk in, no matter what you're wearing, no matter your external viewpoints, what I might see of you externally, it's just not going to matter. Those things are not going to capture my attention. I'm not going to relate to you based on what you're wearing. Because I've got a hold of the glory. And if you don't have a hold of that glory, then you are going to relate to somebody based on an external. And the, the two illustrations, the biblical illustrations that I tried to bring up, that just are ridiculous, but it helps you understand, is imagine Moses he says in Acts chapter 33, I mean, Exodus 33, God, show me your glory. Remember, he puts them in a cleft of rock. He says, you, you know, Moses, you can't take it face to face. I'm going to walk by and you're just going to sort of see me from behind. And, and God walks by, puts his hand over Moses. So he gets by and then right at the last second, he draws his hand and Moses gets to see something that he's longed to see for, something we long to see. And if right at that moment, God withdraws his hand and, and Moses gets to see the glory of Almighty God. And I could walk in right at that moment. And I go, Moses, wow, look at my gold ring. What? Do you not understand what we're looking at? We're looking at the glory of God. I don't care about your gold ring. Or if when the shepherds are watching over their flocks by night, and remember the, the angels of the Lord come and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And then this whole choir of angels come and join and they sing glory to God in the highest. And what if I could walk in at that very moment? And I could go, shepherds, hey, look at my tie. I mean, you'd be like, this is ridiculous. Your tie, I've, I've got a hold of the glory of God. I'm standing on this very rock-solid platform. So when you walk in and you've got some gold or you've got some riches or you've got rags, it just doesn't matter. I'm not going to judge based on that because I've got this foundation. And so that's critical to our understanding because if we don't have that as our understanding, then the best I can do is just say, don't show favoritism. Why? Ah, it just It's not a good idea. It makes people feel uncomfortable. I mean, you know, you can come up with, but you know what? They're, they're all my reasons. They're just things that I'm saying that seem, they. I don't want you to show favoritism because I don't feel, you might show me favor. I don't like that. I don't have any ground to stand on. I'm just standing on some ground I'm making up. And so it's critical that you really have the, the groundwork so that otherwise, if, I, if you come to this service today and you just say, hey, it was just a sermon about favoritism, then it's just a legalistic sermon. And you've heard plenty of those sermons. Here's just another thing that you're probably not doing very good at. It's good to have the coach come in and say, you're not doing very good at that. Hey, let's break the huddle and I'll go do better. Well, I want you to do better, but I want you to do better because you got a hold of the right thing. And once you have a hold of the right thing, then flowing from that, you're just not going to show favoritism. 
Is that, is that helpful? That's, that's the key. I can, I can mention all these practical things, and James is going to be supremely practical, but if you don't have that in place, then this is just another do-better sermon, and we're not trying to do better here. We're trying to get a hold of the right thing. And once you have a hold of the right thing, then everything else is going to flow from that. Now, you have this transition. You see it in verse 5. He's told us his subject, don't show partiality. He gives an example. If a man walks in wearing a gold ring, you say, hey, you sit here. And the person who's who's in rags, you say, you know, you sit on the floor. And he, then in verse 5, he says, now listen. So he's he's making this transition. So you got my premise. I've given you an illustration. Now listen, let me give you some very practical points. And this is the sermon today. He, he's saying, I... I just want to tell you some practical things that we want to make sure we avoid in our first century church. Isn't it surprising even? You have James. He's the pastor of the very first church in the New Testament. He's the half-brother of Jesus. I mean, that's pretty good pulpit fill, don't you think? Who you get to hear today? Yeah, the half-brother of Jesus, James. Eh, see what he has to say. No, you'd be like, Awesome. When the very first church, the half-brother of Jesus is going to preach. It'd be great. And what's he spend all of his time on here in these first 13 verses? Favoritism. Think, how could it be in this very first century church with a half-brother of Jesus behind the pulpit? Well, if it's in the first century church, guess what? It's in the 21st century church. So we want to pay attention. When, when James says listen, we want to listen in because he's going to tell us something that's helpful for us. Ourselves, And let's just notice some of the things that he lists here in the next several verses. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. So the first thing that James tells us that if we're we're showing favoritism towards the wealthy, if we're moving favorably towards people who look wealthy just from an external standpoint, then then we're contradicting God's own movement. God, God is favoring the poor. He's moving towards the poor. And so if we're moving towards the wealthy just based on their wealth alone, then then James is saying, hey, you're going in the opposite direction of God. One commentator put it this way. It's not that God is not willing to save the rich as the poor, for God shows no partiality, but there are circumstances in the condition of the poor which make it more likely that they will embrace the offer of of the gospel. There there are circumstances in the condition of the poor which make it more likely that they will embrace the offer of the gospel. You see, wealth is a terrible barrier to the gospel. How do you know this for sure other than it sounds good when Paul stands up and says it? Because Jesus stood up and said the same thing. Remember the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he goes away sad. Why? Because of all of his wealth. And Jesus says, it's very difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they have all these barriers. 
When you have wealth, you feel a sense of self-sufficiency. You feel like you can take care of the issues that may be coming at you. You understand that there are problems. You have problems. The world has problems. But you're mostly self-sufficient because you have an education. You have a bank account. You have a way in which to deal with those things. But the poor don't have that. The poor understand, I've got these problems and I I cannot fix them. I cannot even help myself. I need something or someone outside of myself to come in. And I'm looking up and I'm looking for a Savior and I'm receptive because God's moving towards people who have that kind of attitude. And the people who are self-sufficient and say, you know, I've pretty much got it all together. When God moves towards those people, it doesn't go very far. Because they've got these barriers erected around themselves saying that I can take care of myself. James says it in chapter 1, verse 9, that, that the people who are poor are rich in faith. This um, sentence or this conversation actually has just continued to stick with me. Uh, several months ago, we had uh, Joe uh, Peebles here, Julie's dad. And we were doing this informational piece on uh, China, East Asia. And he just came to talk about the issues going on in East Asia. And it was very interesting, but then he made this statement that's just the statement that's really stuck with me. He, he'd been saying, you know, China had been closed for so many years to the gospel. And now, even though there is some persecution, at least comparatively, it's more open. And so people are more freely able to go to China and share the gospel and then he, he made this uh, comment. China is now the fastest growing church in the world. It also has one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing economy. And then this was what he said. This door of openness to the gospel only has a five to ten year window. And I was like, whoa. I mean, what does he know? He, he, he's making some guess, but he's looking out and he's saying, hey, the, the, it's really wide open right now in China. And now's the time. Now's the time to, to strike. Because in five or ten years, the country's going to be closed back down. And I kept thinking, is some political ruler on the rise? Is there some way he understands the country's going to get shut back down again? And so somebody said, well, what is this thing that's going to close China, this country down? His answer, wealth. You see, with this fast-growing economy, more and more people are going to get wealthy. And when you have this mass group of people who've been poor, now become wealthy, what happens? Barriers start to go up. Self-sufficiency increases. And effectively, wealth, according to Joe, is shutting down opportunities for the gospel. So I think we need to understand that this first point, James is saying God is moving. He's moving towards the poor. But I think we can add another point here because it's not just the poor in wealth. It's also the the poor in spirit that God is moving towards. Showing favoritism based on any external appearance contradicts the gospel. 
if you're showing favoritism based on some sort of external, then what you're doing is you're saying you don't have a real grasp of the gospel. Eugene Peterson says this in, about Romans 5.8, God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. God, God put everything on the line when we were of no use. But what, what makes the gospel good is that God is moving towards you before you're of any use. meaning you're poor, you, you don't have anything to offer. That's the gospel. That's what's, what makes good, the gospel good news is he's moving towards people who are poor. They don't have anything to offer, and he's still coming towards you. And imagine James, he's standing up there and he's preaching the gospel, and he's saying, the God, the king of the universe, he's moving towards poor people. He's moving towards people who have no resources, who have no account in this world. And that God, he's moving towards those people. And at the exact same time, the ushers come in and say, uh, rich people, you guys come down here, and the people in rags, can you sit along the wall in the back? Imagine that happening. You know what James would say? He said, your, your seating arrangement is messing up my message. You're, you're telling people it matters by the way you seat the people. And I'm coming and saying it doesn't matter. And so James is saying this, you're, you're, what you're doing here is completely contradicting the message because God isn't judging on externals. I, I just wondered because I was reading another article when a pastor 225 years ago in America preached this message and the black people had to sit in the balcony, what would you say? We're not judging on externals. It doesn't matter what you come in looking like in any way, shape, or form. God's moving equally in all directions, but yet your, your whole seating arrangement contradicts the gospel. And so we have to make sure in our minds, are, are we doing similar kinds of things? Are we looking down our nose in some way because of external appearance? And if you are, you're, you're contradicting the gospel. That's why we read 1 Corinthians 1.26. Brothers, this is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise, not many were influ influential, not many of noble birth. In other words, nobody had a good last name here. But God chose, God chose foolish things. God chose weak things. God chose lowly things, despised things. He chose things that count nothing in this world so that nobody can boast. But listen again to the description. Here are the people that God is choosing, not wise, not influential, not noble, foolish, weak, lowly, despised, people that are nothing. If you hear this list and you go, yeah, I kind of resemble that list, you're in a good place. God, you're, you're ripe for the kingdom of God. But if you hear this description, lowly, despised, 
not noble, not influential, not powerful. And you go, I just kind of look down on people like that. You're not in a good place. You think too highly of yourself. You might be in danger of missing, the, uh, missing heaven, of missing the gospel because of your favoritism. God's building this kingdom. He's, he's building it on this foundation. And the foundation is the grace of God. The foundation is not your money or your wealth. And if we communicate in our church, if we communicate in any other form that you really get favor from God because of some kind of external condition, then we're, we're destroying the message that we're, we're trying to propose here from the pulpit. If, if you say to somebody, you've got to look good to get in. The, the people who have the money here have the power. They're the ones that have the seat at the table. They're the ones that have the voice. The people who know other people, they're the ones of influence. And if that's what you're saying, then you're destroying the message. The things that have value in this world look very different in the next world. What, what, what are the streets of heaven supposedly paved with? The most valuable thing that we would say, gold. Why is that? It's just saying it's not valuable up there. It means we just use gold as pavement. <laughs> not now. It's $1,250 an ounce or whatever. I'll pick up that pavement any time. But you see, we, we've invested in things in this world that when you get to the next world, they just don't have any value. you got your pockets full of stuff that you go, this is kind of trash now. I don't need any of this. C.S. Lewis does such a, a great job in this book, The Great Divorce, where this people get on a bus ride. You know the story if you've read it. If you haven't, great book to, to read. And they come in, they're kind of like hollow people. They're not substantial, so that when they walk around in the grass, the grass doesn't bend underneath their feet. They're not real. And they're always, oh, 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 oh. And they run into these different kinds of solid people. And this one guy who's in a conversation, they, they run into this woman. And this is, this is what Lewis says. Here, here's a person of unbearable beauty. And then the person asks, she seems to be, well... A person of particular importance because all these people are flowing around her. All these things are happening around her. And she's coming into the presence and the person goes, who is this? They're somebody of particular importance. And then the guide answers, yes, she's one of the great ones. But in your world, she is someone you've never heard of. You see, fame in this country and fame on earth are two different things. So we, we, we need to examine ourselves. Are we holding on to the glory? If we are, then these external things aren't going to matter. If they are mattering to you, you need to go back and hold on to the glory of God. Second thing, verses 6 and 7. Are not the ones who are rich 
oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, we're not saying all rich people do this, but James is speaking to a particular congregation, and he's saying, hey, generally, don't you find this to be true? Those who are, you're, you're saying, hey, you get the good seat in here when you go out. Those are the very people that are oppressing you. Those are the people that are dragging you into court. Those are the people who are defaming God's name. And so he asks these sort of rhetorical questions like, why would you even do that? Why would you give those people the VIP seats just based on their externals? I mean, it doesn't make sense until you just start thinking about why would somebody do that? Why would, even though this person is oppressing me outside the doors, that just based on their external clothing, their gold rings, I give them the VIP seats? Because I think the ushers thought, well, if I give them favor in here, when we get out there, guess what? I'm going to get some favor back. And it didn't happen. See, they're just using the favoritism as a cycle. I give you favor in here. When we get out, I want favor out there. And James is saying, well, why, why would you do that? And I think the answer is because of the gravitational pull. It's like a black hole. That if you get anywhere near it, it has such a a powerful pull, and that's wealth. It just seems like you wouldn't do it. But, you know, because wealth has such a gravitational pull, it just sucks you in even when you don't want to do it that way. Paul, who writes to another pastor, Timothy, he says, people who wanted to get rich have fallen into temptation and a trap. They've fallen into foolish and harmful desires. They've they've plunged themselves into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. So we look and say, why would you do that? But you, you just know, you, you should know your own heart. There's a massive gravitational pull towards wealth. And when that starts pulling you in, you need to examine what, what you're doing around those things because it's very easy to start making compromises just based on money. Love this quote. When money talks loudly in the church, the glory of Christ departs. The second thing I thought about when I read this, I thought, well, okay, I've got these people who are oppressing me, and but yet when they come in, I feel some obligation to give them the front row seat. So first I understand, well, there's a gravitational pull for money. But even if, it, let's just say that wasn't a gravitational pull for me. And so you'd walk in and go, I don't care. You've got tattoos, you got ear piercings, you got a gold ring. It just doesn't matter. What, what, why, why are you doing it? But then I thought, isn't that the nature of sin? You see, that might not be a big deal for me. But how many people are holding on to sin that's oppressing them? How many of you are holding on to a habit 
or an addiction, and you go, I hate it, but I can't let go. That's the same thing that's happening here. You may hate that you're doing these things, but you just can't let go. They have this pull on you. And James is understanding the human heart. It's, it's got this pull towards itself, and he's wanting us to be careful because if we're not careful, then we're going to show favoritism. And when we're showing favoritism, the gospel is really going to come untangled. Third reason for not showing favoritism. Verse 8 and 9, it breaks the royal law. See that if you really fulfill the royal law, he's going to tell you what that is, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James is saying he's giving the second half of the great commandment. You remember this in Matthew 22, the Pharisees comes up and says, hey, can you tell me what the greatest commandment is? Remember that? And what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you hear that? What's the foundation? What's the stone that you're standing on? He doesn't say, now go and love your neighbor as yourself. No, that's the second thing. That's an important thing. But if you don't have the first thing, you're not going to be able to do the second thing. The first thing is you've got to love God. You've got to have a hold of the glory of God. And when you do, then you can love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't have a hold of that glory, and I'm just loving you best I can, is that good enough? Oh, that is not good enough. Because the best I can give you is me. That's not going to help. Trust me. I can't take you that far. And when you stand before God Almighty as the judge of creator, all creation, I can't take you any distance at all. And so you've got to have the love of God firmly implanted. Then you'll be able to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you're not doing that, you're, you're breaking the royal law. You're breaking the greatest commandment. And to try to solidify that this is a big deal, look at verse 10 and 11. It gives an example. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do you murder, you have become a transgressor, transgressor of the law. In other words, if you just say, hey, you know what, I've never committed adultery. And you come up to me and say, Paul, that's awesome. I do have this problem with murder, but I mean, it's kind of a small thing, don't you think? No, you'd be like, no! Or I've never murdered, but you know, I really have this struggle with adultery. It only happens you know, once a month, so it's not a big deal. But would, would you say that's okay? Would you say, well, I mean, everybody falls a little bit. You can keep on going. No! You say, it's ridiculous. But you see, that's not the way it is with favoritism, is it? What if I said, well, now struggle with favoritism? Ah, everybody struggles with favoritism, Paul. You see what's happening? It, it's, hey, it's okay. It's, but if I say that about adultery, hey, that's not okay. If I say that about murder, that's not okay. And James is going, it's not okay with favoritism. 
You might be in a very conservative church to say, we just got to make sure we don't have adulterers. Right, we do. But James is saying, with the same passion, you cannot have favoritism. You cannot look at yourself and say, well, we've got these two things down. We don't murder and we don't commit adultery. And pat yourself on the back and you show favoritism. It's all the same. You can't feel good about yourself because you've got these two things down and you're just letting favoritism slide because, uh, you know, everybody struggles with that. It's, it's a big deal. He's trying to help us say, this is a big deal. You've got to examine your heart. You've got to understand what's happening inside and understand that's a big deal. It, favoritism exposes that you don't really have hold of the glory of God. You have the hold of the glory of man. It, it's moving in the opposite direction of God. It distorts the gospel. It breaks the law, it's a big deal. Finally, verse 12 and 13. James gives this warning. If your judgment of others is without mercy, then God's judgment of you will be without mercy. That's a tough one. If you judge other people without mercy, then one day you will be judged and it will be without mercy. So, verse 12, so speak, so act. James is so practical. How are we supposed to speak and act? Then then act like someone who's going to be judged under the law of liberty or under the grace of the gospel. You see, what's what's going to happen one day when you walk through a doorway from this life to the next, you're going to walk into a great assembly of the most unbelievable, beautiful beings there ever were. And God's going to be the judge. And His light will be so intense, nothing could be hidden. And you will be the only one in the assembly with rags on. And you will walk forward and you will be judged. And you don't want to be judged on what you're wearing. You don't want to be judged on your own righteousness. You don't want to be judged on what you did. You don't want to say, well, God, you know, I did these things and my my pocket full of good things is a little bit bigger than my pocket full of bad things. No, I don't want that. I want the righteousness of Christ. I want the the cloak of Christ. And so when He sees me, you're beautiful. Welcome to this assembly. No favoritism based on what you look like. Only based on what Christ looks like. If if you understand that's you, that you're going to stand before God Almighty and He's not going to be basing it on whether you have tattoos or ear piercings or gold rings or a cashmere sweater. That's not going to matter. He's not even going to see those things. He's going to see either your deeds or Christ's deeds. That's what He's going to see. And if you understand, if you have even a small grip on that reality that Paul Phillips, with all the sorriness that he is, all the lowliness that he is, all the despised things that he's done, all the things that have made him nothing, of no account, 
are going to be counted on the cross and then I'm going to get the righteousness of Christ. If I have a hold of that, then when somebody else walks into my assembly, what am I going to say? Mercy. I understand. I understand because I understand myself. But if you don't understand that, oh, how favoritism can squeeze in there. And you're just a little bit better than somebody else because of, you're just a little bit smarter. You're just a little bit more powerful. You're just dressed a little bit nicer. Your car's just a little bit newer. Your house is just a... And the list goes on and on. It's a big deal. It can ruin the gospel. It can destroy a church if you show favoritism. So speak. So act like one who has been shown mercy. Let's pray together. Lord, this is just so hard. Because we live in a society completely based on some scale. How old you are, how young you are, how smart you are, uh, or how dumb you are, how big you are, how small you are, how tall you are, how short you are, how much money you make, how much money you don't have. What year is your car? I mean, our, our, every, everything about us, we look at people and we start immediately putting people in categories based on external things most of the time. So we, we really need your help here to hold on to the glory of God, to understand you and to understand ourselves so that we could love our neighbors as ourselves. We could extend mercy to people who look very different than us. Whether that's rich or poor. Lord, I thank you for your word that is like a a piercing arrow. And I pray, Lord, as you have given us this word in James today that in the 21st century church you have drawn back your bow and you have let arrows go out this morning to pierce hearts. So Holy Spirit, you do your work now in ways that I cannot. Thank you for the wealth and the resources of this church. We're Very grateful, but it puts us in a very dangerous place to be self-sufficient. Lord, protect us from that. Protect us by helping us to be generous givers. To understand that all wealth, all power, all influence really comes from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.